I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. That's a strong text. We are looking forward to hearing Ian talk about that. Let's pray for Ian as he comes. Lord, we pray that you will enable Ian to speak your word, that you will gift him with your Holy Spirit, and that you will enable us to hear what we need to hear and where we need to change our perspective. Amen. Thanks, Monica. Well, guess what? What are we doing First Timothy 2 today? We've been talking about what does it mean to actually come to the scripture to be informed and shaped um, by what scripture has to tell us. And so one of the things that we also need to look at is where we get what sometimes feels like um, mixed messages from scripture. Okay. Now the automatic thing would be, oh no, no, there's no tensions there, no, um, no awkwardness, it's all good. Or there's people who say, well, it's all clearly contradictory and so I'll just pick the bit that I like. That's not particularly helpful either, is it? If you are going to, in a sense, disentangle uh, what appears to be a kind of um, discrepancy or else a kind of contradiction or something like that. And we just need to slow down again and go a bit deeper and uh, think about our own approach to scripture and how we're actually reading it because that is a part of what's going on here, I think. So over the last few weeks and even if we think back a few months ago, one of the things that we've been looking at is, as I say, the way we approach scripture. Okay, so. Just then, um, we've just heard a couple of stories about prominent women in the Bible, in leadership, in positions where they were uh, doing things that might be normally have been expected of men. Um, 
most of the judges in, um, in the book of Judges, men. And yet here is a prominent woman doing exactly that. Um, we have disciples. Disciples prior to Jesus were, I think without exception, men. And yet here is Jesus with a, a large number, maybe a half. Some even say might even be more than half of the women who were following Jesus in the early stage all the way to Jerusalem. Um, certainly that's commented upon. And when we come to the book of Acts and the 120 gathered in the upper room, if that's still the case, the Holy Spirit is falling upon, let's just say, 59 men and 61 women. Switch it around if you like. What do we do when we come to scripture and listen to some of the things that are spoken about, about women? Okay? Now if you're a guy, you might not care. Because as a guy, in as I'll talk about this in a bit, but this was prominently a patriarchal culture where men are the norm and the women are the addition. We don't, often have, we don't have to actually think about what it means as men about anything, about being particular to men. Men are the norm. And then there's the question about, ooh, what does this mean for women who are not the norm? Rather than men and women together and working out our, our roles together, men are the norm okay it's commented upon if somebody is a woman that's oh that's different that's outside the norm and the bible itself is god's words coming to us through the framework of patriarchal culture and within it what we watch is actually god's word at work in the patriarchal culture changing the norms shifting the roles challenging what's going on and moving people to a different place so I'll talk about that in a little bit. But I think it's worthwhile us thinking about this both in terms of what it means for us inside the church and also what it means in terms of engaging the wider culture. Because, of course, one of the things that comes back to us, who want to say how fantastic Jesus is, how amazing the gospel is, how incredible the God is that we serve who comes to save us, is we may well be asked, yeah, but hang on a minute, the Bible has some stuff that has some not particularly helpful things to say uh, about Women. I mean, we want to understand what's being said, when it's being said, and why it's being said. Okay? So we want to read it clearly. We want to understand where, where it fits in the story of the Bible. And we want to understand why it's saying the things that it's saying, and not just kind of be a, a robot or, dare I say, childlike in our understanding, and not. Uh, grasp what's actually going on. We're just following the words, a series of words. Okay. In a moment, I'm going to compare it to how we might approach the issue of slavery. So when we come to Scripture, here we are with an amazing message, a, um, a liberating message. Okay. So sometimes it's exciting to actually present the Bible's vision for human society because it means freedom, it means human flourishing, it means all these good things, but also at the same time people can point to texts that might seem, well, that's quite oppressive, or that's affirming slavery, or that's affirming uh, patriarchy and, and an oppressive role for women. So we have to, in some sense, understand what's the central thrust of Scripture and how the different texts which might seem problematic to us along the way, how do we read them in light of the major thrust? And this often comes down, um, this often happens in debates about um, the role of women in ministry. We just read First Timothy chapter 2. 
and we're all pleased and pumped as we go through the first part. And when we get to the sec last part there, it's all a bit, ugh. okay. Any questions at all from any women? Shush. <laughs> and you say, okay, well, we wouldn't do that anywhere outside of the, the church in our heart of hearts. What's going on? And we're going to get to that. But we need to kind of clear the ground before we get there because we really want to understand what's being said in detail next week, um, but we want to set a bit of a context, how to read it in light of what else is in Scripture. Okay, so I've already said, and uh, you know, I've already said that basically the issue of patriarchy is just that something in society, it's something in most societies through history. Um, and you might think, well, you know, today we're much more enlightened you know, in terms of equality and equity and so forth. But we still have what people call the glass ceiling and so forth, and we still have a kind of a dominant thing where men are mostly the norm and okay, and women are included but also a bit of a problem so that's part of what patriarchy entails but it's just a reality in the bible okay when paul's writing the household codes about wives and husbands he's addressing a patriarchal context but he's addressing it in the light of the gospel and so you might think about you know the role between husbands and wives in a roman household and he starts off with the idea of submitting to one another. All the brothers and sisters submit to one another. And then wives, you submit to, submit to your husbands. Well, you submit to the Lord. He's just told everyone else, we all need to submit to each other in that way. Wives, you do this. Husbands, you ought to love your wives like Christ loves the church. And in effect, what you're doing is that within those patriarch that patriarchal system, you're beginning to undermine it with the ethos, the ethic of love, servanthood and submission. You're not going to just say, Paul's not going to write and say, hi everybody, okay, just like everything today, reset, start from scratch, off you go. It's part of what I would call like a vocational ethic, all through scripture. It's moving people from one place where they are toward where you want them to go, but it doesn't always mean you're just spelling out the ideal and expecting perfection the next day. Paul is a realist. The biblical writers are realists. Okay. So what happens when we think about, I guess, our approach in terms of um, interpretation? Well, before that, actually, yeah, think about patriarchy and about um, only 100 so years ago, um, things were not even as they are now. Women still had a place within the society. They had a certain set of roles and if they stepped outside of that they were hysterical or the, you know, there was some sort of uh, issue uh, with them maybe it was a kind of a exception that proves the rule woman who you, sorry you want to get an education uh, you, you want to go to university um, and there's a whole host of very reasonable men with very reasonable reasons as to why it's impossible for women to do certain things for instance, you couldn't have them working in factories and things like that or until the First World War, in which case all the men are gone. How are we going to keep this thing going? Hey, guess what? Now women are actually able to do it. Um, and we have to change our reasons based on how we want things to be. 
So there's a lot more going on, isn't there, in our kind of rational explanation of things and our rational account of how the different sexes uh, work together. So what does this mean when we come to the Bible as well? Well, as we've said over the last few months, we're not working with a flat Bible where you just jump from verse to verse all over it and they equally have the same weight for us as Christians today. They are part of a larger story, a larger narrative. So we want to know where something is and compared with other statements. Statements that come later are likely to have the others in mind and in a sense to trump them, okay? You're not going to say, ah, so Jesus says this, Jesus doesn't know his Old Testament very well. Um, back here it says this. It's a flat Bible. I have a choice between the two. I'm going with this one. Back here in the Old Testament. No, you would say, Jesus knows his Old Testament, but in line of the kingdom, this is the reality now. Or you might say with Paul. Paul, in the light of his reading of Scripture and the coming of Christ, the coming of the Spirit and this new creation, this new reality... Okay, he has things to say which mean that's going to trump what comes before because it's related to salvation history. It's not like we're just standing in an empty field just making statements and which one is going to be correct. It's understanding it in terms of the flow of history. And so we're going to do that in a minute. Um, but remember, it's a developing narrative. But not only that, we are actually called not just to read the story but participate in it as a kind of drama. So we're not necessarily just going to do exactly the same things as what Christians in the first century in Rome did. We're going to look at what they did and in the light of the gospel and the coming of the spirit and those central theological themes, ask in our situation, how can we faithfully live out what we're learning here? Just as the gospel comes to them and the teaching of what it means to live a faithful life in Christ comes to that context, so too it comes through that context to our context. And so we need to ask questions about how we will actually live and embody that truth uh, as well. Being guided by it, but we're not uh, following it like um, uh, slaves to it, you might say. So speaking of slavery... Um, a good book by a fellow by the name of uh, William Webb wrote a book called Slaves, Women, Women and Homosexuals. And in it he talks about the idea of an, a redemptive hermeneutic. You might remember in the American Civil War, a lot of well-known um, American theologians and uh, Bible teachers arguing persuasively for some people, obviously, that actually slavery was part of God's given order of things. And that you could find it, it's there in the Old Testament. And it's there in the New Testament as well. So just being able to find things in the Bible and then say, it's in the Bible, it must be okay, is not enough. Is there anyone that disagrees with that? Because we should probably stop the therapy or an intervention or something now if that's not... Okay, I'm going to assume that you all think slavery is a bad thing. All right. What does it mean for the gospel to speak into a situation of slavery where that's part of the whole order of things, where in Rome something in the order of 70 or 80% of the people are actually slaves serving other, other people? Um, 
So what Paul should have done is write to Rome and just say, slavery is bad. As of today, Christians, it's all over. Finish it all. The end. And some people would love that. But that's not how biblical ethics seems to work. It seems to work rather. What does the gospel say in the situation that would actually undermine this taken-for-granted structure, this taken-for-granted relationship and move this community as a sign of God's new creation in a different direction. It's, of course, why it's quite intriguing, is it not, that we have the book, the letter to Philemon in the New Testament, a letter being carried back by a runaway slave to his former master, who has now become a Christian, so they're both now Christians, and they're now going to meet each other again on the basis of brother and sister relationship. Yet, at the same time, there's still going to be some sense of which he's probably going to be working for his previous owner. But Paul wants them to start thinking about what their primary relationship as brother and sister is, as well as what their roles are within the household. And it's not like he's justifying slavery. He's already begun, or the gospel, we might say, has already begun to undermine that primary, that being a primary relationship and whittle it away. And we know through history this is part of what's happened. The gospel whittled away uh, at that. And not just the gospel, the message, but the community which practice a different ethic based upon the gospel. So what you've got there is what he calls a redemptive hermeneutic. Okay? That hermeneutic is a way of interpreting scripture. That is that the Bible's message is ultimately one of salvation, of liberating us, freeing us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, says Paul in Galatians 5. And that's the purpose, and it's carrying us along in history. Um, people of God seeking to influence wider society as well, but within their own community first, practising a different way of life. So... Moving people from where they are to something new and more faithful to the gospel. Okay, so what does this mean in terms of thinking about this narrative? Okay, before we get to First Timothy 2, what does it mean about thinking about the narrative? What are the high points that we might want to think about? Because in a lot of the discussion we hear from people about women and ministry, really the one big verse is the one that we uh, had read out 1 Timothy 2, and on the basis of that, not on the basis of looking at it in light of the examples of actual women teaching, not on the basis of thinking about it in light of possible other situations that, that um, were happening in the New Testament, not thinking about it as a specific instruction necessarily to a specific situation, we end up with this question of do we emphasise that or do we emphasise the bigger gospel picture? So, the classic text in this debate, of course, Galatians 3.28. Let's look at it. Open up uh, your Bible there and just have it in front of you and then have in your minds as well the text that we just read, 1 Timothy 2. Okay. Peter Nichols, in your most bold and loud voice, would you mind reading that out? me? Galatians 3.28. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, 
there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so on the one hand, we have people, I'm one of them, have people that would emphasise this bigger, um, universal, would say, statement in terms of what does it mean to be in the church? Is it male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile? All the other distinctions we can think of that uh, make us not just distinct but also sometimes can separate us in our roles and relationships. But fundamentally, instead, our primary identity is to be in the Messiah, in Christ Jesus, and that those distinctions are no longer fundamental to who we are in Christ. Okay, so what happens if you emphasise that? Then you want to read 1 Timothy 2 in light of that and say, okay, here's a pretty startling prohibition. How do I read that in light of this large statement here? If you're prioritising this statement, 1 Timothy 2, then you might be saying, hmm, then what, maybe there are other limitations I need to put on uh, this other statement. Um, if I have to decide between the two, I'm going with this one uh, verse. The other verse, I think, encapsulates basically what the gospel um, is telling us in terms of the uh, importance of being called together as one new humanity where, let's face it, in the new creation, that will no longer um, matter, male or female. Okay, so if we were reading this again in light of this biblical story, what do we find? Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we find that the fundamental statement at the beginning of the Bible is that male and female identity, uh, male and female existence, not masculine and feminine, not gender issues there, just male and female, is fundamental to being a human being in the created order and that it's connected with um, procreation. So Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that we are made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, not higher or lower, whatever, the same, image of God, male and female, both called to express God's rule in the world, to reflect um, his character and rule in the world and to interact with God in the same way as well. That's the baseline, isn't it? Creation. Male and female, both in the image of God. Now we have a story in chapter 2, which we'll go into next week, of uh, a second account of a woman brought to a man, the interaction with the serpent, the deception, the disobedience, and then the judgment that comes upon them, and then the question about a hierarchical relationship between the two as part of a punishment. But let's talk about that next week. Okay, but that's the baseline. If you come then to Israel, next stage along in the Torah, women and men are both addressed together. Both women and men have agency. They're both commanded. It's not like the men are commanded and then, okay, just give me that. And I'll tell the women what to, what to do. I'll tell them what God said. They're addressed all together. Now, in the patriarchal system, men have a role of prominence within that. That is not something which God says, yes, indeed, that's how I said it should be. It's just how it is. And God works and addresses within that. 
I would argue, to move them somewhere new. There are leaders, as we just saw with Deborah. There's a kind of nor what feels like what's normal is for a man to lead, but actually, you know what? God just says, you, I'm calling you. And when he calls someone, he equips them. He gives them his spirit and empowers them and enables them to do what needs to be done. So Deborah is both a judge leader using wisdom and discernment and she also has the spirit as a prophet. I'm just going to say prophet rather than prophetess. You know what I mean? Prophet, normal, prophetess. Or a woman doing something similar. Just prophet. Okay? Who's a prophet? Guys who are prophets and there are women who are prophets. So there are leaders that do something, uh, do important things. As I said, in the disciples, when we get to Jesus, the Messiah, following him, women form either an equal or maybe even a higher percentage of his disciples. Jesus was actually supported, you might remember, by women as well, financially. Um, I mean, I suppose he could have, um, Jesus could have uh, travelled around and kept to, kept breaking loaves and fishes and things like that, so sort of a discount, like just by a small number of loaves and fishes with the small amount of money we have and expand it to something new. Perhaps like some American Christians might imagine, he might have uh, been a good capitalist and then he might have sold it, made a bit of a profit and then it would have been okay. Oh, I don't believe that. Um, so, but anyway, he was supported by women in that as well. So women had an important place in the Jesus movement. Then we get to Acts chapter 2. And as I said, you have 120 uh, people in the upper room and the Holy Spirit is poured out um, upon this new community. And they go back to Joel. Joel, uh, in chapter 2, he go back to Joel, the prophecy. It's been fulfilled right here among you. And what do we hear? That your sons and daughters will prophesy. The sign of the giving of the Spirit, men and women, sons and daughters, all of them together prophesying. That's what happened. So if you think about it in terms of creation, think about it in terms of God's movement through history with his people, Israel, we find that uh, there are women who are given the spirit and given leadership, that as well. So there's not something inherent about women which means that they cannot lead. Or, you know, I'll let you take up that criticism of God. Don't know about how he made a mistake there. It's, there's nothing about women per se that means they can't lead. So it doesn't matter what patriarchal cultures have said through history, including our own, and maybe even to a degree even in our present day, and sometimes, yes, here in the church, sadly, our church now, but um, there's nothing actually that prevents women by nature from being able to take on a leadership role. It all seems to have to do with cultural norms, social roles, which are themselves changeable and have changed through history. So we have to ask ourselves, in light of scripture and in light of the liberating message of the gospel, in light of the giving of the spirit to men and women, sons and daughters, etc., what does it mean actually for women to be fully involved in Christian community? Then we also have prominent women through the book of Acts and in Paul's letters as well. So we have Phoebe who brings a letter to the Romans 
to Rome. And as virtually all the commentators that I've looked at have said, it's, it's most likely that Phoebe is the one who not only brings the letter, but reads it out and answers questions about it. Which means that she's fully briefed by Paul. Okay, read it, understand it, any questions, talk about it, etc. Okay. Off to Rome, reads it out. It's a hard letter. Is it, Terry, a hard letter, Romans? Heck yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> we're finding that. Um, and there's Phoebe. Phoebe is the one who is likely to um, answer questions about it. Is that teaching? Okay, let's leave aside that question for the moment. So there's Phoebe. There's a background there. Again, we might just talk a bit about that uh, next time as well. Just turn with me to Romans chapter 16 for, uh, for a moment. We voice. I'm going to go for, for Peter number two. Peter, could you, could you read out uh, Romans 16, uh, 1 through 2? 16. I, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Kenfe. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for, to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Openus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stephis. Greet Apellus, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trifina and Trifosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philogos, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. So there you are, the Churches of Christ for the first denomination in uh, the New Testament. Okay, so what do we see there? I mean, that's um, okay, it's a lot of names. What do we see in there, though? Interestingly, of course, uh, we've already seen Phoebe. And then we're on to Prisca and Aquila, um, who are Paul's fellow workers. Both of them are Paul's fellow workers in Christ. And that's primarily Paul's way of talking about his work 
sharing and promoting the gospel. And so Priscilla and so Prisca and Aquila are both fellow workers. It's interesting actually that the translation Priscilla was something which came later because it was actually a way to partly diminish its thought um, Prisca's importance because her name actually has quite a bit of uh, weight uh, behind it in terms of her own social standing and that uh, as well. So she's an educated woman, which would surprise us because we've seen her teach in um, the Book of Acts. She's, she and Aquila are the ones that took aside Apollos, uh, who we know was later important. See him popping up in um, First Corinthians or mention of him. And so they actually instructed Apollos in the way of Christ because he had that, I think you remember at that point he was going around talking about John's baptism to the Jews in the uh, diaspora. And so they said, uh, okay, let, let me explain to you what comes after that, like where this is actually going. So they were important and they remain esteemed people in Paul's mind together. And Prisca is mentioned before Aquila, bar once. She always comes first. Why is that? Okay. Here's the different ways it could be. It could be that she's actually understood to be the dominant, uh, well, sorry, the primary person in terms of a teaching role, more well-known in one sense, that, yes, Priscilla, uh, Prisca and uh, Aquila are here, and um, over to you, Prisca, with Aquila helping out. That is quite likely. But it could also mean that this is part of her upper-class, we'll say, background as well, that she has a... Um, a fairly important um, social standing uh, prior to um, becoming a believer, and so it could be because of that. So it could be Lady Dorothy uh, and Peter. <laughs> so it might be it might be just uh, something like that. That's a possibility, but most people think no. I think there's actually something going on there in terms of the teaching role. Not a lot rests upon that. The fact is, even uh, people who are not as comfortable with them teaching admit in here that, well, they're both clearly involved in teaching. And teaching the man. Of course, some people would be like, oh, well, that Priscilla, Priscilla couldn't teach unless uh, Aquila was there because he had to, like, you know, oversee it to make sure it was all okay. This is where we start imagining and making up things to kind of fit our predisposition to something. Okay, there are more women involved in uh, here as well. And you'll see them pop up. And of course, in verse 7, you get to what is quite a controversial thing. And again, none of this is like, if this is not the case, women can't teach. It's just to say, what's going on here in the background before you even got to 1 Timothy 2? Remember like we said in terms of our diagram, you don't just look at a text, you want to look at a text in the light of the rest of a letter, which is what we're going to do next week. You want to see that in relation to the rest of what Paul wrote at different parts of his life. And then you want to see it in the larger New Testament, so then you, and you want to see it in the light of Scripture. So that's what we're doing now. What's some of the things that Paul actually did, said and did and practiced and affirmed before we get to 1 Timothy 2? So we have in verse 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kindred and fellow Christians, who are seen among the apostles and who are in Christ before me. So remember, Paul became a convert all oh, within the first, what, 10, 15 years of the Christian 
movement. Um, and these two who are now in Rome and may well have been living in Rome and been visiting um, Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, some point or not, they've made their way back to Rome and they could well be people who were instrumental in actually spreading the message of Christ in, um, in Rome. The controversial phrase, as you might see there, is both of them are esteemed among the apostles who, and who were in Christ before me, as I just said, esteemed among the apostles. The dominant, I suppose, easier grammatical reading but more uncomfortable truth for some, is that esteemed among the apostles is that here are all the different people who are apostles. I'm not talking about the 12, because Paul does use the word apostle a lot more loosely. And it depends who is sending who, but they can still be an apostle. His uh, Titus and Timothy and others also get caught up in this idea of being an apostle, because they're being sent out to preach the gospel. They're not one of the 12. They didn't witness the risen Christ but nonetheless apostles. Andronicus and Junior are esteemed among all these people, apostles. Or, less likely but possible, is they, the apostles really esteem these two people. So when the apostles get together, um, just the 12, I suppose, they all get together, they all say, how about that Andronicus and Junior? So good. So, question there, Andronicus Jr., are they, in that secondary sense, like Timothy and Titus and others, apostles, people who are sent out in leadership form, plant churches, lead churches and teach? Okay, then we get back to Galatians 3.28. I won't repeat what I said about that. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be at this point of what salvation history means? What does it mean to have reached basically at the time of fulfilment, the time of moving to what God really wants to do? And in that, distinctions between are you a Jew, a Gentile, are you a slave, are you a master, are you slave or free, uh, um, or are you male or female, not, no longer the point, if it ever was. So what I'm saying very quickly, not to you, but to me, very quickly, was in terms of creation, if you think about God's movement in history and what he actually tried to do with his people, Israel, and the way that he encouraged them, moved them along through the giving of the Spirit, for instructing them with the Torah, with the coming of the Messiah and calling men and women to follow after him and the giving of the Spirit to men and women together in incorporating them all in one body, in Christ, and in all of the examples that you can find through the New Testament of women actually leading and women actually teaching, and I haven't even given you them all, um, at all. I think what we have there is our baseline, is that, yeah, I don't see necessarily a distinction that means that a woman could not teach a man. Remember? Where does it say it? What's it saying? Look at it closely. And why? We have to know why. Not just someone says, um, oh, there's a woman teaching in our church next week. Oh, well, it says here. 
read out the words and not be able to give an account of why that is. Okay. So we have two texts, really, which are a bit of a problem for us. In the light of what we just said, which is the big picture and I would say the flow of redemptive history, you then have two things. You have 1 Corinthians 14, you have a, a comment there about women remaining silent. In the same passage as them prophesying and praying and having a song and maybe giving a word of exhortation, etc., to be silent. Why? Okay. Is, is Paul like uh, saying, you know, you know, look, just do this all in order. Oh, look, it's too hard. Just have, the, just have them all be quiet. The women, that is. Men are never disruptive. Have you ever met an emotional man in a meeting? No. No, you never have. You've never seen someone lose their cool. It's a woman problem. So that's clearly nonsense. It's clearly the kind of thing that people, um, in trying to justify an understanding, end up saying terribly sexist things. Okay? You say that women can't teach. Why? You can't just say, well, it's written here in these, these words. Which again, we're going to go back and see what it actually is about. You have to give an account of it. And, of course, what we find is that when people try to give an account, they say the most cringeworthy things which none of us actually believe. And maybe they could have gotten away with it 100 years ago, but they couldn't now because it's clearly nonsense. All right, I'm, I'm going to wrap up there, but I'm going to just um, get us just to look at it uh, again and I'm going to flag a couple of things for next week. And then we'll just go into this. This really is the big text that people who are opposed to women teaching uh, will use. So in the, in the midst of this conversation, which is just for, I'm just going to forget the background for a moment, is that a woman or is it a wife? Oh, sorry for asking questions. Um, I will, uh, should learn in quietness and full submission. Uh, full submission, what does that mean? Is that actually a discipleship-related word? Oh, oh sorry. Well, all right, let's, so we've got, a, two, we've got two questions there. I do not permit. Oh, that's funny. It's actually not the Greek tense there. Oh, we'll have to come and look at that again. A woman is, again, is that a wife or, or a woman generally? To teach or have authority over a man. Is that husband or is that every man? There are answers to this. I'm not trying to like, ooh, you can't believe anything anymore. Um, <laughs> these are actual questions that we need to ask. And some of them, not all, become clearer uh, by looking at the Greek. Okay, I want to teach. What does teaching entail? Any kind of teaching at all? Just in the church? Just if it's about the Bible? Don't teach theology? Can they teach church history? Can they teach pastoral theology? Or can they teach as long as there is a man present, again, to make sure it's okay? Um, have authority. Well, that looks fairly clear, doesn't it? I'm just going to say ahead of time. The word for authority that is used everywhere in the New Testament is not that word. It's a word that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. And it doesn't just mean having authority. It is a kind of dominating um, word. It's actually why I've pulled back on saying the word dominate before. 
or dominant. Um, so, over a man. So, who is it? She must be silent. Okay, you might think, okay, I don't understand why that's the case. Well, let me clear up for you. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Does that help you out in terms of women teaching? So, um, Monica has taught here from time to time, and um, I think perhaps someone should read that out to her. Monica, you can't teach because Adam was formed first than Eve. Now, there is a logic to what's going on here, but it's not necessarily what you might think it is. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So there you are. So um, Eve is a woman. She got deceived. You're a woman, Monica. So therefore, you uh, must be the same. You must be more prone to deception because you're a lady. Okay. And that's the kind of arguments to get used. And hopefully... You're all absolutely cringing in your seats, but it's not saying it in the way that I'm saying it now. Again, next week. I'm trying to coach you to come back next week. Okay. But women will be saved. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, through childbearing. Um, okay. So keep that up. Oh, also, if you continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. All right. Now, I'm not having a laugh at scripture there at all. It's actually quite an interesting argument that happens underneath and is actually really hard to bring out uh, in English. And, but it's made worse if one imagines this is a prohibition for all time in all ways against women teaching. It all sounds horrifying. And in fact, I've known people become Christians and have had to talk them through we'll talk through it next week what's actually going on here because they say oh my goodness why am i buying into into all this is this actually what god thinks of women that we are silly and easily deceived and that we need a man around in order to be able to teach where does it say it later in paul's life talking to timothy who's in ephesus what's it saying delve into it have a look and then why why is he saying it okay down and now we don't 100% know but we have lots of clues and so there's two or three probable ones so we'll talk about those next week but in just finishing for the moment what I'm wanting to say is that there are larger biblical reasons that we affirm women teaching Okay. There are large biblical reasons that we actually say women are as smart as men, women aren't susceptible to being deceived more than men, etc. That's really not what's going on there. Um, and there are important theological convictions that lie behind our affirmation of women teaching. And that is the context in which we will examine this. And it is a hard text. Um, but we don't let one text rule over everything else, okay? We want to see how it all fits together. I believe it does. Um, and we'll do a little bit of work. So if you are coming next week, and I hope that you are, please bring your Bible. Please bring some notes, scribble things down, because, yeah, 
What's the point of just, um, you know, one ear out the other? Let's um, work through this together. I think it's important. It's been the basis on which some people in the past have left the church, have they not? And I think, when we look at it, that the reasons for it were completely like, unjustified. Like, I understand why people feel strong about something, but again, we don't just follow the words, we follow Christ and what has been shared to us through his apostle in this context and to understand what that means for us now today. So we want to affirm the authority of scripture, but we don't want to be silly about how we do it. Okay? We don't want to take an argument which actually undermines things that are said elsewhere, particularly in relation to the status and the leadership capacities, the gifting and empowering of the spirit that are given to women and also men. Okay. Amen. Can I pray for us all? And then have you got a... Okay. Dear Heavenly Fathers, thank you so much for the amazing gifts that you have given us in Christ. You have given us the gift of salvation, eternal life beginning now and then going on into the age to come. We thank you that men and women together are heirs of that great salvation. We thank you that you have empowered us in this world by putting us in a community, by giving us your scriptures and by giving us your spirit so that we are enabled to follow through on what you call us to do. And that those gifts and callings are not revoked. Father, I ask that you would help us to be patient as we read scripture together and we work through things which are not always clear and are sometimes difficult. We ask that you will give us open hearts and minds, that we will celebrate your word and we will hear things that we don't want to hear sometimes and that we will be challenged to live in a way which may go against the dominant culture. Father, keep us open in all those regards as to how you want us to live. And now as we go out into our community, we ask that again you will send us in your love and in the power of your Holy Spirit to share the good news, to follow you and to care for your world. In Jesus' name, amen.